everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Florida State Attorney Andrew Warren, who is seeking a second term in November, and he's running out of Tampa, Florida. Welcome to our show, Andrew Warren. Thanks so much for having me. Good afternoon. So you're less than three weeks away from an election. What's it looking like at this point? Well, I think the whole country is ready to have the election over and done with. Here in Hillsborough County, in which is Tampa area, uh, you know, the community supports my vision of criminal justice reform from four years ago. I ran in 2016 on a platform of reform, which was about making sure that we're keeping our neighborhoods safe as well as promoting justice and fairness in the system and really taking a problem-solving approach. We've had tremendous success over the past four years, and the community continues to support that vision of criminal justice, and they see the success that we've had in implementing reforms while keeping crime down. So what has the first four years looked like? What kinds of things have you been able to accomplish? Oh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind, but we've had a lot of accomplishments um, across the board. One of the most significant ones we had was uh, in reforming our juvenile justice program here. Our juvenile justice system was dysfunctional, if not broken. Uh, We put way too many kids into the adult system We did not do a good enough job of steering kids away from the downward spiral of the system. So we really took a a three-tier approach to addressing those issues. One is we created a civil citation program that's a pre-arrest program for kids to hold them accountable while making sure that an arrest and conviction doesn't hang over them for life, making it impossible or harder for them to get into college, join the military, or get a job. We drastically reduced the number of kids that we charge as adults. Uh, Our county had been a national outlier for many years in that respect, and we know that when kids go into the adult system, it reduces the likelihood of rehabilitation. And we've invested in prevention. We've partnered with a lot of grassroots organizations and nonprofits that work with kids. Uh, We want to get to those kids before they even get into the criminal justice system to make sure that they're on a path to success. And through those three programs and working with other stakeholders, we've had juvenile arrests are down 30%. Our, we've cut our direct files, the charging kids as adults, by 70%. We've made a big difference here while keeping kids along a much better trajectory for a life of success. And so what things are you looking to do in a second term? I think our number one priority for the second term 
is going to be building and expanding on things that we did during the first term. We talked a little bit about juvenile justice. We've made steps here to minimize poverty traps that that catch people in the system only because of financial insecurity. We've done a lot to change how we handle uh, people who suffer from substance abuse, addiction, mental illness, to make sure that we're uh, giving them the help that they need to address the underlying problems, that they don't commit more crimes rather than just blindly prosecuting them in the hope that they somehow stop committing crimes. Um, we've created a conviction review unit here to look at identify, fix wrongful convictions that we know exist. So a lot of what we want to do in our second term is expanding on the programs that we've started, that we know work, to make sure that they are running efficiently and smoothly and even uh, putting more people into those programs because we know that leads to success for our entire community. And what are you hearing from the community? I mean, what are their concerns or, or is it pretty much the same everywhere at this point? Well, we have a really diverse community here in Hillsborough County. It's, uh, I think, a small slice of America. We have a population that's diverse in terms of uh, ethnic and racial background, uh, age, um, religion, and uh, across cuts across different uh, parts of our economic spectrum as well in terms of people's uh, socioeconomic status. And so we hear different concerns and different issues from different parts of our community. One of the things that has been a, a concern recently, similar to what's going on around the country, has been the issue of racial injustice. Uh, George Floyd's murder brought a spotlight to a lot of issues on the criminal justice system. And I think that's a, that's a welcome side effect uh, to have that light on things that we're doing because there are problems in the system. So over the past four years, we've taken a lot of steps here to identify and fix racial disparities, but we have more work to do. So this has created uh, new opportunities and partnerships with grassroots organizations uh, to try to identify some more of those problems, whether it's from having a, an office that reflects the rich diversity of our community in terms of uh, our prosecutors to making sure that we're having uh, robust support in place for kids who are we're putting into diversion programs uh, to making sure that we're being uh, extremely transparent about the decisions that we make in the office and the policies that we've implemented. Are you surprised that you're dealing with issues like, should we um, prosecute protesters? The protests around the country have created uh, some difficult questions for law enforcement, for prosecutors, for judges, and frankly, for all Americans as we you know, try to strike that balance between exercising our First Amendment rights, uh, but doing so in a way that doesn't uh, threaten or undermine public safety. Uh, what we've had in Hillsborough has been, I think, no different than what you see going on in most of the country. Uh, so we've taken a very steady path here from the state attorney's office, which is we will strongly support people's First Amendment rights, the right to assemble, the right to free speech, the right to voice their opinion, and candidly to voice their opinion in a way that we tend to agree with, which is one, speaking out against racial injustice and speaking for equality. At the same time, we're not willing to tolerate people who are committing crimes, especially when they're committing crimes under the guise of protest, when really what people are doing who are committing those crimes are acting selfishly. They're distracting from the voice of the protest, and you know, someone who is raising their voice against racial injustice 
doesn't need to destroy something to make their voice heard. They don't need to steal something to make their voice heard. And we've had people here have tried to take an advantage, tried to take advantage of that situation by committing crimes. You know, we've had uh, some arson. We've had some people attacking law enforcement. We've had some people who have been uh, robbing and committing other theft. We're not going to tolerate that during protests, just like we don't tolerate that uh, when it's not in connection with the protest. And I'm just curious because you have a different perspective on this than a lot of people. I mean, the people that you're prosecuting who are committing these acts, uh, criminal acts, are you seeing them as um, protesters gone amok or are you seeing them mostly as people that are just trying to take advantage of the situation? Most of the people that we seem to commit crimes in connection with protests are not protesters. There are people who are trying to take advantage of the situation. We've seen uh, a lot of peaceful protests here and a lot of protests that have remained mostly peaceful. Now, you get a group of 150, 200 people together, and you have one or two or 10 people who are doing something disruptive and potentially illegal, whereas the vast majority of the people there are you know, doing exactly what we want them to do, protesting peacefully. And so it's it's hard to characterize a protest with such a broad brush when you have different actors there doing different things. But we have had some situations where protesters or counter-protesters uh, got caught up in a moment and did some things that they shouldn't do. And where they're committing crimes, they'll be prosecuted for it. But the vast majority of people we have who are protesting have done so peacefully. Um, and we want to encourage not just the peaceful protest, but civility and understanding and empathy uh, for the voices that are being raised by members of our community. And that's how we actually end up moving past this. And I'm wondering also um, on, you know, you mentioned the racial issues. What's it like down in Tampa? What What's the racial climate uh, look like? Well, well, Tampa has had uh, its history of problems like a lot of cities around the country uh, several years ago. Um, we had an issue with uh, police stopping um, residents for questionable searches, and the Justice Department came in and found that uh, there were some uh, racial profiling going on there. Um, and of course, Tampa is, you know, has a history of uh, racial injustice going back to a lot of, like a lot of places in the, in the South. Um, but in recent years, we've seen uh, a different type of tolerance and acceptance and collaboration here between our community and law enforcement and the state attorney's office. And uh, I mentioned a moment ago, you know, wanting to move past this, we want to move past it to, to capture the energy of the moment, an energy that's being directed at real, systemic, tangible problems, and convert that energy into long-lasting change to make our community safer and stronger and more equitable. And we're seeing that happen here. It's a really good sign when we're able to see groups who may not agree with one another sitting down at the table, discussing issues, finding solutions to problems, and then actually implementing them. That's how, as a community, we move forward. And would you say Tampa is more like a southern city, or is it more like uh, other areas of Florida where there are a lot of people that have moved from either outside of the country or other areas of the country? Tampa is its own unique place. It is one of the best cities in the whole country. 
We have a, a wonderful mix of people here from different backgrounds. We have native Floridians like myself. Uh, I'm not born and raised in Tampa, but uh, in Gainesville, a couple hours up the road. We have a lot of people who are from Tampa and from the uh, other cities in Hillsborough County. We have northern transplants. This is just a great place to live and work and raise a family. So we have people moving here every day by the thousands into our community. This is a fast growing area. Uh, we have not just a, a modern 21st century prosecutor's office, but uh, tremendous uh, local government, economic growth, school system. Heck, we just won the Stanley Cup. Uh, the Rays are looking good in the, for the World Series. So this is a great, great American city and a wonderful place to live and visit. Yeah, I was going to bring that up next, actually, but uh, you beat me to it. Uh, looks like the Rays may uh, go to the World Series. Well, we don't want to count our chickens before they hatch, but and this is a really proud community for the Rays. Um, this this is a small market team. I mean, their payroll is uh, a fraction of what you know the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers and the Cubs have, and they've for the past more than a decade been one of the most successful teams. And it's uh, as exciting as it is to watch them thrive this year and be uh, on the cusp of getting to the World Series. It's frustrating, too, because we can't be there in person to root them on. Uh, but this is going to be hopefully title town for Tampa between the Lightning and the Rays. And we'll see what happens with the Bucks as they continue to improve. But it's been a really nice distraction as people are dealing with very serious issues with COVID uh, and what's been a difficult 2020. The, the success of our sports teams has been uh, just a great win for our community. So I want to bring us back uh, because the issue of police accountability is kind of front and center, and we haven't really touched on that. Uh, what what are you seeing in terms of the police in your community, and then what are you guys doing? Well, when we talk about police accountability, one of the things we have to remember is the different roles that different agencies play in the system. So the the protests have become so politically divisive across the country and in, in Tampa and in Hillsborough County. Um, and what we see is people who are you know, shouting against the police on one side and people who are shouting against the protesters on the other side. The reality is that the problems that we see in the criminal justice system are pretty nuanced. When we're talking about racial disparities, problems of police accountability go beyond single bad actors doing bad things. They have to do with systemic issues. And we know that issues that manifest in the criminal justice system often start outside the criminal justice system. You know, they start with a lack of access to high quality education for every resident and every student. They start from a lack of economic opportunities for everyone in our community. And so we see all these problems that sort of come to a, a peak in the criminal justice system but we know they start beforehand. So when we talk about police accountability, it's broader than just what do we do when one officer does something bad? The question is, how do we train our police and how do we have our police work with our community to actually serve the needs of the community from public health to crisis intervention, 
to, of course, public safety, to supporting victims. That's the bigger dialogue that has been that's been missing from the conversation for many years. And it comes back to what I was saying before about the protests following George Floyd's murder shining a spotlight on these issues. It's a good thing because I've been talking about these issues. Other people who work in criminal justice and other progressive prosecutors have been talking about these bigger issues for years. And now there are a lot more people who are actually seeing them up close and the consequences that they have. Just to give an example, when we don't have the resources to have people with mental health training respond to a crisis where somebody is having a mental health crisis and they call 911 and law enforcement shows up and you have no one with clinical expertise there, you, you're at a higher risk for a bad outcome than if you have someone who's trained in de-escalation, someone who's trained in dealing with someone having a mental health crisis. And so when we talk about police accountability, it's not just, well, what do we do if the officer does something bad in that situation? It's how do we put the officer in the best place to succeed and help that person from the beginning? And that's the broader conversation that we need to have that we're actually now starting to have. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point. Uh, One of uh, the issues that we've been dealing with on the other coast uh, has been, you know, uh, how to integrate mental health into policing. And there's an interesting model. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's uh, out of Eugene, Oregon. It's called CAHOOTS. They're a nonprofit that's been... uh, responding as first responders in mental health calls for 30 years now, and they have an interesting track record. Uh, they, they have hundreds of thousands of calls, and only uh, 150 of them have they had to actually call the police as backup. Uh, so it, it, it's a pretty amazing record uh, that, that they have. Are you familiar at all with those kinds of programs? I am indeed. Uh, Miami has been working on this for nearly two decades, and they're one of the uh, premier jurisdictions in the country in terms of responding to mental health crises. And they have every officer in every agency gets crisis intervention training. They have uh, clinicians um, who attend, who go out on those calls. You know, this is a zero intercept model, meaning that you want to address the problem before it even gets to the law enforcement and into the criminal justice system. It's something that we're, we're trying to replicate here in this area. Uh, we have law enforcement that has now embraced crisis intervention training for all their officers and deputies. Um, our sheriff has uh, put social workers and clinicians and a mental health specialist in the office so that they can assist with those calls for service. But one of the problems is we put so much on law enforcement, they have to respond to all types of emergency situations, even when those emergencies don't require a sworn law enforcement officer for a public safety reason, they often require someone with a different expertise for a health addiction, overdose, mental health crisis reason. Yeah, and it, it, it seems like the more we can get police out of situations that they don't absolutely need to be in, the better off we're going to end up being, both them and us, right? That's absolutely right. And you look at uh, people are focused on uh, George Floyd, 
in his murder, and with good reason. I mean, that's something that should never happen, that should never be tolerated, and um, that the country should uh, be aghast uh, when somebody is, is murdered in, in that manner. Uh, that being said, the systemic issues are uh, the larger ones, and they affect more people. I mean, you talk about a program in in Eugene, Oregon, and one in Miami, and the number of crisis intervention calls we have here, where having those better resources can put police in a situation where they're not operating outside their expertise. That means a better situation for the person who's in need of help, a better situation for law enforcement, just a better outcome for the whole community. And when you talk to law enforcement, are, are they buying into this or are they resisting it? Our local law enforcement buys into this idea. You know, we, the reality is that law enforcement has to wear so many hats. They are uh, public servants who are obligated uh, and tasked with trying to uh, uphold public safety, you know, to stop a violent criminal one moment and then help somebody who's overdosing the next and then play a guidance counselor or a marriage counselor or a teacher or a parent and a substance abuse expert, mental health expert, so many different things. And I think a lot of law enforcement recognize where their expertise and it's usually more in the being out in the community and uh, stopping crime and investigating crimes and arresting people when they commit them rather than wearing all those different hats. So our local law enforcement here has been really open to conversations about how do we put our officers in the best position to succeed? Who else do we need in that situation? I know that it's different in different areas around the country from talking with uh, my fellow prosecutors from different parts of the country. But here I think we do a really good job of having open lines of communication, staying on the same page, sharing a vision about what's the best for the community, and then the difficulty is, of course, in implementing that. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's interesting because I talk to people all over the country these days, and I do hear pretty much the same thing that you're saying where I think it gets a little more difficult is when you get to the question of what happens when something goes wrong because I feel like you know somebody who's been covering police issues for 15 years all over the country what happens is that you have a a criminal justice system and a police oversight system that fundamentally do not work, and uh, they don't. They especially don't work uh, for police incidents because, what you know, if you have a guy who comes and he shoots somebody and kills him, it's easy for you to go, okay, we'll prosecute him, right? Uh, but you know, when you have a police officer that's doing their duty and something happens and he ends up shooting him, that's a much harder call, is it not? That's absolutely right. It's a very difficult case to prosecute uh, for an officer who has the defense of, in the moment, I was uh, reasonably scared for my safety or the safety of another. It actually doesn't just apply to officers. We see it happen in the civilian context all the time, where in Florida, we have stand your ground law, so there's no duty to retreat. So it often puts civilians 
in the same situation as it does an officer, where officers are expected, of course, not to retreat, but to de-escalate a situation or to address a problem, uh, sometimes through uh, the use of deadly force. When there's no requirement that a civilian retreats, uh, when they're able to, you're putting them in a similar situation. And we see it where uh, confrontations escalate to the point of deadly force, and it becomes very difficult to prosecute people when somebody's explanation is, well, that person came at me, or I thought they were going to come at me, or he had a knife, or he said he was going to grab a knife, or he said he had a gun, and I saw him reaching for his pocket. You know, dead men don't talk. And so when we're only relying on the testimony of uh, that sh the shooter in that situation, absent other eyewitness testimony or video testimony, it makes it really difficult. We see the same issue with law enforcement, too. It's just... You know, law enforcement, like citizens, are given the benefit of the doubt when they say that they were in fear of harm. And, of course, law enforcement is often expected to do something to uh, fix that situation, even if it's deploying deadly force when they're confronted with a potentially uh, violent and deadly threat. So it's a, it's a very, uh, you know, it's the insurmountable uh, obstacle sometimes is to be able to go back and look at what happened in a case and know exactly what was going through two people's minds and to be able to prove that in a court beyond a reasonable doubt, it's an extremely high hurdle. And I appreciate that. Um, but there's the other side of this, and and that is, you know, somebody like me, we, we look at a lot of these cases, and most of them, we come to the conclusion that somebody shouldn't have died in this situation. Uh, and so I think where you get the public frustrated is that they see these situations. I mean, Breonna Taylor is a perfect example of uh, something that didn't have to happen, shouldn't have happened. Uh, and, and, and yet, is it a crime? Um, and and that, that really becomes the hard point. And then if it's not a crime, how do you hold somebody accountable for something that shouldn't have happened. There should be, there should not be a dead person in that case. That, that's right, and Breonna Taylor is a really good example of problems that led to a situation that led to her being killed in the first place. You know, there are questions about why were the officers uh, going after, uh, into the apartment of her boyfriend when there was a tenuous connection, uh, from what I've read, uh, to the, the targets of that drug investigation. There's a question about why, uh, what evidence they had to go in in the first place to get a warrant and whether there had been any suspicious or criminal activity occurring at the apartment. There's a question about the use of the no-knock warrant. I mean, there are so many things, even to go back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, David, about putting the officers in a position to succeed on behalf of the community. And there, it appears that there were a lot of questionable decisions made that led to a situation that was much more likely to have a really bad and tragic outcome. And the folk, everybody's focus is on, you know, how do we punish the officers? How do we prosecute them? And that's an important question, of course. It's an important question to achieve justice for, um, uh, for Breonna Taylor. But the really the more important question in a broader perspective is how do we prevent this from happening again? 
is nothing we do is going to bring back Breonna Taylor, but there are things that we can do to prevent another Breonna Taylor from happening by questioning the decisions that led to those officers being there in the first place, executing a no-knock warrant that led to uh, the confrontation that ultimately led to her death. So when you see a case like this, and obviously, you know, it triggers very uh, polarized feelings in the community, what kinds of conversations are you having with law enforcement in your area so that you can figure out before the next Brianna Taylor happens, God forbid, um, what to do to prevent it? Well, Brianna Taylor hasn't changed the conversations that we've been having with law enforcement because we've been having them for years here. I mean, since I got elected, we've been talking with law enforcement about de-escalation training and the need for crisis intervention training. And when uh, we review in the state attorney's office every use of uh, deadly force by an officer, every use of deadly force by civilian as well, but by officers too, we're the ones who make the decision on that. And there are times where we see officers did not commit a crime, but they did things that um, are questionable calls that perhaps could have led to a different outcome. You know, we had a case recently where somebody uh, attacked an officer, a, a sneak attack essentially with a knife, or a woman pulled out a knife on an officer who she had sort of lured into a situation close. And the officer retreated and retreated and retreated and was yelling, drop the gun, I mean, drop the knife, drop the knife. And after about 30 seconds or so, um, the officer had tripped, you know, retreating backwards in a circle in a parking lot, and the woman was um, close enough to him that he had no choice but to fire his weapon at that point. And we've seen situations where officers have resorted to deadly force the moment they were legally allowed to. And you know, those are neither of those situations create a criminal case for someone to be prosecuted, but they create an opportunity to go back and talk and say, we really should be waiting to deploy deadly force until the last possible moment. You know, we don't want to put the officer's life at risk. We don't want to put civilians' lives at risk. But we also don't want to put the that uh, person's life at risk, um, especially when it can be a mental health crisis or some other situation that's not, this is a bad person intent on doing a bad thing. And so as soon as they pull out a weapon and threaten someone, they're going to get shot. It's someone is having, for example, a mental health crisis, and how do we address it uh, without the use of deadly force? So those are the types of conversations we've been having with law enforcement, and we're far from perfect here, but we've seen some really good steps taken in our law enforcement community, and we haven't seen a lot of situations where we go back and say, okay, well, that was a pretty bad outcome that could have been avoided. And and it's kind of interesting you were mentioning, you know, where the legal line is. In in California, where I am, uh, we've actually changed the law and changed where the legal line is. And so now you really do have to wait until the last possible minute and have exhausted every single uh, other option before you can use deadly force. I don't know if that's something that you're familiar with or you can comment on, but it is interesting to see where lines are being changed. I, I am familiar with that, that change in the law in California. Uh, that's something that we don't have in Florida. 
Um, it's, you know, we want to make sure that we're balancing public safety uh, for both sides. For And it's not just a law enforcement civilian. It's the, uh, you know, you have to think about it in a civilian context as well. Um, we don't want a situation where, you know, somebody gets into an argument and then both sides are allowed to escalate that argument legally until somebody pulls out a gun and shoots the other person. If we have seven different, you know, back and forths where, well, he said something and I said something back and then he pushed me, so I punched him, so I grabbed a knife and I grabbed a gun and I shot him, you know, that back and forth. In that situation, everyone may have done something that was legal under the law, but are we promoting an outcome? Are we encouraging an outcome where people are using deadly force against each other? That's what we need to take a hard look at. And the stand your ground law in Florida and some of the changes that they've made to it, I believe, have actually increased the likelihood for violence. Um, there have been studies done across the country with stand your ground laws that show they can lead to violence. Um, it, it's created a logistical problem in our office in terms of just how we prosecute those cases because now we have to and essentially try those cases twice because of a recent change in the law. So I, I, I agree with you. We have to look not just at the policy changes and the training for law enforcement, but what are we doing with a law and is a law encouraging us to escalate versus de-escalate? So uh, one thing I didn't ask you was uh, what your background is and how you got into this in the first place. Oh, well, I I always wanted to be a prosecutor. Uh, from the time I realized I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, which was probably around the time I was 11, um, you know, a little kid wants to grow up and uh, be a – doesn't matter the sport. Just let me play sports for a living. Um, but I, I went to college expecting to go to law school and went to law school wanting to be a prosecutor and uh, was fortunate enough to join the Justice Department relatively early in my legal career. I cut my teeth prosecuting a street crime in Washington, D.C. I spent most of my career uh, with a specialized section of the U.S. Department of Justice prosecuting complex financial fraud all over the country. I found it extremely, extremely rewarding, was able to uh, go after people who had stolen from investors and retirees and government programs. And I loved being able to walk into courtrooms around the country and announce Andrew Warren on behalf of the United States. It was uh, an honor and a privilege. Uh, I ended up moving home to Florida uh, about seven years ago and was still working for the Justice Department and ended up running for state attorney for two reasons. One is because I wanted to continue that public service in the community where I was raising my kids. And secondly, because I had seen a lot of problems in the criminal justice system and really wanted to be an agent of change at a time when reform was desperately needed, both to reform the criminal justice system in my community and to be uh, a voice of change and to influence change around the state and around the country. Now, that's the background. That's how I ended up here. And we've had a lot of success in terms of reforming our system here in Hillsborough County and in terms of, you know, joining that national conversation and really shaping change across the state and across the country. And it, it's interesting because, again, I've talked to so many different uh, prosecutors across the country now. I don't find a lot of reform-minded career prosecutors uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't know if 
you know how you came into that but it is uh it is actually a little unusual um i yeah i've had some defense attorneys here call me a unicorn because uh a background as a prosecutor especially a federal prosecutor and they have a reputation for being uh you know bold tough aggressive prosecutors and i'd like to think that uh that applied to me as well but at the same time a prosecutor's job is uh to seek justice uh, but tempered by mercy and compassion. And so I came up learning through my law school experience as a, as a federal clerk uh, and in the time I spent in private practice uh, doing criminal and civil work that the goals of the criminal justice system are about more than just punishing people. The goals are supposed to be about accountability and reducing recidivism and standing up for victims and helping rehabilitate offenders. And I had seen a shift in our country over the past generation where that balance had gotten out of line, where our criminal justice system was one that was too punitive. It was focused far too much on punishing offenders and not on the other goals. And it may be, I guess, rare to see someone with a prosecutorial background as a reform prosecutor, um, but I feel like I've come to that position of believing passionately about reform because of how I know the system is supposed to work and the shortcomings I've seen firsthand as a prosecutor. Well, great. It's been great having a conversation with you uh, on uh, these issues and learning uh, about uh, your county and Tampa and all the things that you're doing. Thanks so much for coming on our show. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And come visit Tampa sometime. You can see uh, the Stanley Cup here, and hopefully you'll be able to see the World Series champion Tampa Bay Rays here too. Well, I look forward to a day when I can travel again. (laughs) And same here. And you'll also be able to see a a modern 21st century prosecutor's office in the flesh here in Tampa, Florida. So thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Well, That was a great conversation with Andrew Warren. He is state attorney uh, in Hillsborough County in Florida, uh, home of Tampa, and uh, very excited about uh, his Tampa Bay Rays and the Lightning and and their recent success. Uh, This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.